to worship you. We've gathered here in love with our brothers and sisters in your eyes. We are so grateful for the opportunity to do so. Please forgive us our moments of failure in your eyes. Please continue to grant us the blessings you've bestowed upon us. We feel your work in our lives. We see it in the people around us. And we are grateful and we are loved. Amen. Well, good morning. So, one of my many, many nerdy hobbies is a love of comic books, okay? Uh, I have collected comic books since I was a young kid, and I'm still doing it today as an adult, to the joy of my wife. Uh, I have a uh, collection that's not the biggest in Sugarland by any stretch of the imagination, but it's still... Nonetheless, a little embarrassing uh, on just how much uh, I have accumulated over the years and how much I enjoy. Now, as I've gotten older, though, my preference in comics has moved away from the standard kind of superhero fare. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, heavy, good, thoughtful authors have moved into the medium of comic books. It's true. Uh, And things that once upon a time would have been written and communicated in the form of a novel. They're now using the medium of a graphic novel, as they call them, to give it a little bit of a uh, dignity, I guess, uh, to get the idea out. So the comics I've been reading over the past handful of years have dealt more with myth, pathos, and the human condition. Okay, One of my favorite comic authors is a guy named Neil Gaiman, who you may, may have heard of, maybe not, Well, Mr. Gaiman's also written several novels, one of which was made into a TV show that starts tonight, actually, first episode, season one, and it's called American Gods, okay? I read the book, loved the book, Uh, plan to watch TV show as soon as it moves to Netflix and I can binge watch it all in a weekend because that's how I consume TV. Uh, Now, I'm not going to spoil the book or the show too much. But the premise is that new gods have arisen and they are supplanting these old gods of myth and legend and fable and stuff. And these, these, these figures are personifications. They're walking around, they have names and feelings and a body and everything like that. Uh, these new gods he's chosen for his fictional story are the internet, the media the stock market, just to name a few. And I think, I think as an observation on where America is spiritually, that's pretty spot on. It really is. Now, um, I'm willing to assume that none of us in this room has sacrificed a goat lately uh, to anything or anyone. Uh, but I'm going to admit, I've sacrificed my time and my money to the internet. Okay? Uh, Many, many, many people in this nation believe that the invisible hand of the stock market controls much of what happens in America. Both uh, 
financially and employment-wise and where people live. Uh, you know, even my favorite joke, which has far too much truth in it, is the glowing magic box has all the answers. I can remember 20 years ago getting arguments with people where we would drive through the night to the Rice Library because it was the only one open so that we could prove somebody wrong in a fit of competition. <laughs> now you don't have to do that. Now you can fact check someone as they talk. All right? But if you think about it, this language, the way I'm talking about these things, this is language that humanity has traditionally used to speak of what it worships. A supernatural force, the invisible hand of the stock market, right? Controls things. All the answers are there. I give it my time. I give it my attention. Now, honestly, is this worship? No, not really. I don't think that when we spend time on the Internet, we're worshiping the Internet necessarily. But as Christians, it can still be a problem. It really can. Uh, my sermon today is on idolatry. Uh, that's what we're going to be exploring now, first of all, I'm going to give you a personal example of how this can be a problem for a Christian, okay? So I have a very structured morning routine during the week. My Monday through Friday morning looks exactly the same. I get up at the exact same amount of time. I do the exact same things in the exact same order, and they each take me the same amount of time to do them. Um, I'm not completely rigid and structured in every aspect of my life, but I certainly am in the morning routine. Mostly because I'm usually not awake until I'm driving to work. Um, so I kind of need that muscle memory and that repetition to make sure everything happens along the way. Um, but within that structure, okay, within that pattern I have, uh, there's about 25 minutes of free time every morning, 25 minutes of free time. And I used to use that time to pray. I used to use that time to read my Bible to study things, and to really kind of connect with God. Over the past couple of months, however, I find that more and more I'm using that time to goof off on the Internet, okay? I'm reading articles, web comics. I'm uh, endlessly scrolling Facebook. Uh, and the sad thing is, is those things that I'm describing, these articles I'm reading, the Facebook, all of that's going to happen later in the day. I guarantee you. In any given day, I am going to make time to be offended by CNN and Fox News. It's going to happen. I'm going to go to those websites. I'm going to read those articles. I don't need to do that in the morning, okay? I will find the moments for these activities. But I'll tell you what. When I start my morning with Christ on my mind, it fundamentally changes my whole day. I am a different person when I open my day with God. I really am. And I like that. I want that. I need that. But somehow, I'm not necessarily doing that anymore. Far too often, I'm just on Facebook scrolling inane posts and pictures from people I haven't cared about for 15 or 20 years. 
take that a step further out of a personal realm, uh, another thing that's coming out soon, I mentioned I'm a comic book guy, is a Wonder Woman movie. Okay? And I like Wonder Woman as a character. It's a strong character. Uh, young Jake definitely was a Linda Carter fan. Uh, but uh, Wonder Woman, as part of her character, part of her biography, she's a goddess. Right? And Thor, who's had four recent major blockbuster movies that almost everybody in the world went to see, at least one of those four. Thor, he's a god. They talk about him being a god. That's part of the story. Okay? And whether we use this word in his biography or not, or we apply the word god, Superman, let's just face it, Superman's a god. And his abilities and powers and the way he's portrayed. Okay? And it's not just movies and comic book characters where we can find these things, these concepts that could tempt us to stray. Uh, think about when John Lennon died and how America reacted. Kurt Cobain shoots himself and people committed suicide. That was a reaction, a response when, when he shot himself. Think about the celebrities we lost last year. There was a whole list. I'm just going to throw three at you. Uh, uh, David Bowie. Uh, Bowie, excuse me. Alan Rickman. Prince. Okay? Think about how everybody reacted. That was all over the news for weeks when each one of them passed. Listen, Bowie and Rickman were 69. Prince was 57. Yeah, it was early. Yeah, they should have had a little bit more time, but it was well past the point where we should be shocked and surprised that they died. Okay? This isn't like they died at the age of 18. They had a few miles on them. Speaking of miles, to give you an example, my car is supposed to get 330 miles per gallon, every, I mean, not per gallon, per tank, in between each fill-up. When I only hit the 280 mark and I have to fill up, yeah, I'm disappointed, but I'm not taking it into the shop. Okay? But we all lost our minds when these celebrities died. Okay? America as a whole was upset. Rickman and Bowie, they're British, and we still <laughs> lost our minds. I'd like to suggest that if you don't believe a celebrity can die so much that when they do, it disrupts your life, they're no longer merely a role model. But at that point, we have chosen to take them beyond and to uncomfortable territory for a Christian. Uh, they're an idol. Now, I don't mean a Ricky Nelson, David Cassidy, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, Justin Bieber, Tiger Beat Magazine kind of way about idol. I'm pretty sure I hit every generation in that. Uh, First service had Sarah closed, and I made the mistake of throwing out Rudy Belay. And uh, that was a little bit before her, and I'll be living that one down for a while. But no, I mean an idol in a biblical way, okay? An idol in a biblical way. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles. And there's one in front of you in the seats. Or you brought it, or do it on your phone, or just listen. I'm going to read it. You know I'm going to read it. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and maybe we're working through verses 1 through 15, as our passage this morning. And it deals with idolatry, and we're going to break it apart piece by piece. Now, before I read it, a little context. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, which is in modern Greece, okay, which back then was named 
the uh, Macedonia, okay? And Corinth is not too far from Athens and Sparta. It's just to the west of, Ath- west of Athens, just to the north of Sparta. If Italy makes a boot, okay, and Greece kind of comes down like a thumb that's been mangled by a, a table saw or something, uh, this, this Corinth's in the little piece that's hanging off at the end. Uh, my point, though, is, is Corinth is very Greek. It is extremely Greek. We should think of Corinth as as Greek as Athens, Okay? Now, this church, Paul founded during his journeys, and we get to hear about it in the book of Acts, okay? He founds the church in Corinth, and it's actually a pretty important and famous passage in the book of Acts when he finds it, because what happens is Paul is put on trial in Corinth. Basically, the Jews there accuse him of teaching new things that go against Jewish law, and they take it to the local government, And the guy in charge, Gallio, says, you know what, this is not my problem. That's an internal Jewish thing. You guys figure it out. By the way, does this story sound familiar? Yeah, this story happens several times in the Bible. Um, But Paul's response to this is to turn to the Jews and say, you know what, forget you guys. I'm going to preach to the Gentiles from now on. You guys don't want to listen? I'll go talk to the guys who do listen. So it's actually here at the founding of the church in Corinth that allows all of us anybody who doesn't come from one of the 12 tribes of Israel genetically, to be Christian. This is where he made the decision that he was going to broaden and talk to anybody and everybody who would listen. Okay? So this is the church that this letter is being written to. It is a church that he founded, and it is a church that is made up of Gentiles from the get-go. And they've been converted from any number of possible beliefs and faiths. After he finds a church, Paul wanders on like Paul does and goes about his business. And years later, he's in Ephesus, and he gets a letter from the church at Corinth, and he writes a response. Now, almost all of Paul's writings that we have, all the letters, they're actually responses to other letters, okay? We get his replies. That's what most of Paul's writings are. And almost all of them is an example of a church who's having a theological question or debate, and they want Paul to weigh in and be an expert. Hey, we're, we've been discussing this. We don't understand this. Can you help us with this? That kind of thing. But the church in Corinth, it seems like that's not the kind of letter Paul's responding to. Instead, it seems like this is a tattletale letter. Like the Corinthian church is like, oh, well, these guys are fighting, and you wouldn't believe what that guy did over there, and, and, and can you make them stop this, and this, that, and the other. There's a very big sense of just tattletales. Uh, my wife's a second grade teacher. I get to hear about tattletaling all the time. And that's, that's kind of what comes through. So Paul writes a letter in response, First Corinthians, that's what we're working with, and he's just kind of checking off each little tattle. Each little one. All right, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. But the prevailing theme, the biggest thing that he seems to be concerned about, as he should be, is idolatry. Now, sound, listen to this and sound, excuse me, listen to this and see if it sounds like something that could happen here in America. What has happened to the church of Corinth is they are completely surrounded by a culture that has all these other beliefs where all, anything can go. And they interact with that culture. And they came from that culture. And they live with these people. And slowly, these practices and these ideas start to bleed into the practices of the church. 
and little things start to become okay. And we start to allow certain things and worship in a new way because that's what we see around us. Unfortunately, it's leading us to stray, just like it led the church of Corinth to stray, which requires correction, and that's why Paul wrote this fantastic letter. So, having said all of that, last thing I want to impart before I read it out loud, I'm a man of many, many words, as you've already found out, is that Paul knows his audience. Remember, the church in Corinth are Greeks. They do not want a command from him. They do not care about an appeal to emotion. Today's politicians would be laughed out of Corinth. Not a one of them on any side would be given any credit at all. No, what the Greeks want, what the church of Corinth wants, is they want reason. They want a structured argument. They want an explanation. And that's what Paul gives them. And that's what Paul's going to give to us. So here we go. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the spiritual, same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Okay. So there's the passage we're going to examine this morning. Now, when I constructed this, I used the Bible translation that I use for study and in-depth analysis, and that is the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. We preach and teach and read on Sunday morning from the ESV. Why am I calling your attention to this? Because what I just read is a solid, single, contained paragraph in the NRSV. Here you may be wondering why I started the next paragraph and stopped abruptly. Well, that's because different translations organize the verses in different ways. The originals in the Greek and the Aramaic, they don't uh, have indentation. We kind of are left to our own devices to try to organize the scriptures in a way that makes sense. But if you were looking at a version, any version of the Bible, and you're wondering why I drifted into the next paragraph, that's why. Because in the uh, 
version I use to prepare, I am, in fact, using an entire complete passage. So there's my disclaimer. There's a lot going on here, and we're going to break it down. So let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. Now, verses 1 through 5, let's hit those again real quick. I'll read them fast. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This is describing the exodus. This is describing the exodus, the Jewish people who were slaves in Egypt. They're liberated. Moses leads them out through the Red Sea, and they hit the wilderness, and they wander, right? Now, Paul adds Christ into the story, and I'm very glad he does, because he's showing that Christ has been what has sustained the people of God from the very beginning. And this is not a new idea for Paul or anywhere else in the Scripture. We've got it all throughout. But it's important that we do look at such things that way. Um, but pay attention here. There's more going on than just talking about the Exodus. There is a duality at play. In fact, you'll notice the more you read the Bible, how much repetition there is. Almost as if events are repeating themselves and to some extent, but in new ways. And this shouldn't necessarily be a surprise. God clearly has a plan, has had a plan from the beginning for creation. And just as clearly, that plan has been derailed by sin to some extent. Doesn't mean God's not in control, not by any means. But we can't ignore the fact that sin has changed what the intention was. So it makes perfect sense that we're going to revisit the plan and correct it. And this may be, may be a reason why we see the same events play out in multiple ways throughout the story of Christ and the story of man. I'll give you a fantastic example for me, just because I have a drama background. Picture a script for a play that was done on a very bad and dirty photocopier. Okay? So you get most of it, but there's words that you just can't figure out. There's directions that are smudged. So what you do, you, you plug in what makes sense, you make the best of it, and you put on the play. And you do. And it's a complete story, and we're done. And then once you're finished, all of a sudden, someone walks in and hands you a crisp, clean, perfect copy. And you start to flip through, and you realize, oh, that's what was going on here. We got this wrong. That word is wrong. We thought this was happening physically. No, no, no. This was meant to happen spiritually. So, this passage is not just about the exodus from Israelite history. It's about our current journey. We are wandering through the wilderness. We really are. Okay? Now, we've been liberated. The events of Holy Week and Easter have liberated us from sin and death in the same way that the Jews were liberated from Egypt. Just as they undertook the covenant of Moses, so we have been baptized into the new covenant of Christ. Our spiritual food and drink is the body and the blood of Christ as just as theirs is manna and the water from the rock. Okay? We are on a very similar journey. 
And just like they made it to the promised land eventually, so too will we promise the kingdom of God. And we're going to make it. But we have to wander through the wilderness first. Doesn't mean we're not liberated. Just means we haven't made it to the destination yet. And unfortunately, just like them, some of us are not going to make it to the promised land. And we will fall in that wandering and in that wilderness in spite of our liberation. Uh, Pay attention to the cloud and the sea. The cloud is sin. It's that which comes between us and the light of Christ. The sea is chaos. Anytime you encounter the sea in the Old Testament or the New Testament, unless it's clearly a destination, he traveled across the sea to get to Corinth. If it's just mentioned or talked about or there's a struggle involved, usually, not every time, but usually you can bet on the fact that the sea means chaos. It means a world that is ignoring God's will and plan. Okay? We traveled through that in that we were baptized. The world is not completely repaired, but we're on the way. Pick it up in verse 6, and what we get is, uh, now these things occurred as examples for us, so we may not desire evil as they did. Note the word desire. This is not evil done in ignorance, okay? This is not evil done from sudden emotion. This is desiring to do that evil. This is wanting it. I'll give you an example in a trite kind of fun way. So some of us gave up stuff for Lent, right? Let's pretend, oh, hypothetically, that you gave up M&Ms for Lent, okay? So evil and ignorance. You just ate that whole thing of trail mix, and you look down and realize, oh, no, there were M&Ms in that trail mix. I didn't realize. I just scarfed the whole bag. Oh, well, you broke Lent. It was ignorant. You had no clue, but you broke Lent. Or, not that this has ever happened to me, but perhaps you're just very busy in your day, and you kind of work through lunch, and you haven't had anything to eat since breakfast, and maybe you have a coworker who has a candy dish on her desk with the lid off, and in that candy dish maybe some M&Ms, and you walk by, and you glance at it, and you get to the doorway of your office, and you realize there are M&Ms in your mouth. And you don't remember the reaching or the grabbing. There's no tactile memory whatsoever, but there are M&Ms in your mouth. Well, that's impulse. That's evil done by sudden emotion, okay, or a sudden response. No, what he's talking about here, what Paul's talking about is waking up in the morning and say, forget this, I want M&Ms. I am getting M&Ms. I don't care. On the way home from work today, I'm stopping at Walgreens, and I am getting the two-pound bag of M&Ms. Not the little bags, not to the register. No, no, I'm going to go into the aisles. I'm going to get the big heavy bag, and it will be half gone by the time I make it to the house. That is what is happening today. That (laughs) is deliberate evil. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Jews... While they were wandering in the wilderness, they messed up. They messed up a lot. They turned from God more than once, and they worshipped idols and false gods. Now, verses 7 through 10 here refer to various stories. Verse 7 is actually a direct quote. It's Exodus 32, 62. 
This is a direct appeal to Scripture because Paul's really concerned about idolatry in Corinth. So he's just going for the straight appeal to the authority, to the Scripture. The rest of these verses, though, are mainly stories that come out of the book of Numbers. I've got those exact references. If you're interested later, I'll give them to you. But what you need to know now is, is he's invoking the history of Israel having been liberated and entering into a covenant from God while wandering in the wilderness, just messing it up, just messing it up and doing the wrong thing. And Paul mentions them to make the Corinthians, and by extension us, stop and ponder where and if and when we have strayed. How have we wandered from God's intent for us? Paul himself sums it up best with the very next verse, verse 12. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. Go back to verse 5 real quick, and we see once again that nevertheless God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Just because Christ is risen, just because we have been baptized, just because we've been liberated from our Egypt, death and sin does not mean that we will get to see the promised land. We can still fall in our wilderness if we are not careful. And I love the use of the word fall. I love it so much. There are other words Paul could have used. Stumble, for instance. You know, those of you who think you are standing, be careful, you may stumble. That would make sense in the context. But here, I really think that perhaps Paul's using the word fall to invoke the story of Lucifer and the angels who fell. Pride goeth before a fall like that. Pride caused Lucifer's fall We should not let it cause ours as well. Don't be so convinced that you are standing in the right that you end up casting yourself down. Verse 13 is a big important verse. I have opinions about this verse. I'm going to read it. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Okay, so if you were following along, you did not see the word testing. You saw the word temptation. In English translations of the Bible, we see three different words here. Either temptation, or we see testing, or we see trials. And the reality of it is that those are all three possible meanings of a single Greek word. Greek is a very versatile language, which means that it has a word that can mean multiple things. If you think about that, English can do that too. But usually with Greek, all possible meanings of a word are very connected in some way. Okay? When you read this passage specifically, whether you're reading temptation or trial or testing or any other word they've snuck in, you need to add the connotation of sin. You need to add the connotation of sin. So, for example, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to everyone should be no temptation to commit sin has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. If you say testing, then no testing to resist sin. 
Understand? We've got we've to add that in there or we lose what he's talking about. This is not a scantron. Okay? This is not a scantron. This is temptation. This is want. This is need. Um, Alexander McLaren was a Baptist preacher from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he said this about the difference. Temptation, temptation says, do this pleasant thing and pay no attention to the fact that it is morally wrong. Testing, however, says, do this right and noble thing. Do not be hindered by the fact that it is painful. Oh, that is the difference. But when I look at this verse, my strongest opinion comes with the word also. Just towards the end of the verse. Um... But with the testing, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. It implies, when you have that word also in there, it implies that God is the one who's actively applying these tests. God is testing you. And I do not agree with that. I think he will always, always make sure, no matter what temptation. And no matter what the source of that temptation is, that there is a way out, that there is a choice that we can make that is right, that is godly, okay? But I don't believe that God is imposing those tests on him. They don't come from him. Why? They don't need to. They come from us. We're going to tempt ourselves just fine without any help. The world's going to test us. Satan's going to test us. And we're going to test each other. Okay? (coughs) God provides the salvation from temptation. He doesn't impose the temptation on us. He can, sure. He's God. He can do all things, right? But I don't believe that's what this passage is saying. And there are translations. There's lots of translations of the Bible. Translations that agree with my opinion. In my interpretation, or the Berkeley, Moffat, Montgomery, the New Living Translation, Phillips, TEV, TLB, and Weymouth. Okay? And there's something wrong with all these translations. I don't work with any of them. But this verse, they happen to get right. Okay? But don't take my word for it. Listen to James in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, Let no one say I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So, how can we actually apply this verse to our lives, though? All questions of translation and word use aside, why is this relevant? What does this do for us? Well, if we expand its meaning to today, then what happens is we can realize that all things can be endured. In all tragedies, in all temptations, in all tests, in all harm times, there is a godly way to respond. And this godly response will always be the best path for all those involved. Thus, the way out may not be the way out provided by God. It may not end the temptation. It really might not. It might not even end the test. But... 
what it will do is it will guide you through in a way that is going to pull good out of evil and comfort out of suffering. Heading into the home stretch here, let's look at verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. Now Paul's speaking specifically about the pagan practices, beliefs, and gods of ancient Corinth. He's writing to the Corinthians after all. But this applies to us even as it did to them. Think back to my opening this morning. Think about those American gods. Now, it's not realistic for us, honestly, to live here in Sugarland in 2017 or anywhere else in America and not be on the internet, okay? Not have money, not uh, be influenced by the media in some way, and still be a part of society, okay? These, these things are going to happen there. And that's not necessarily wrong. It's, I think it's okay to go see the Wonder Woman movie. I'm going to see it myself, probably in the theater, wife permitting. And... Uh, it's okay for kids to go out onto the playground and pretend to be Thor for a little bit and just have fun. Uh, it's okay to be sad when a celebrity dies. This is okay, okay? But being a Christian is more than just going to church on Sunday mornings or listening to 90.9 FM on your way into work. It's about adopting a culture of Christianity. It should inform how we talk, how we dress, how we act, what jokes we laugh at, and which jokes we don't. How we spend our time in the morning. Our culture should be a culture of Christianity, and that should supersede America for us as Christians. It's okay to be American. It's okay to be patriotic. But we are called to be Christians, first and foremost, which should be a higher priority than America or its gods. Paul ends this passage with verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Paul's reminding us he's just a man. He's not claiming any higher authority than his own here. His epistle was not dictated by a burning bush and brought off a mountaintop engraved in a stone tablet. All right? We have to remember that Paul has no idea that this letter or any of his letters are going to be read aloud 2,000 years later or that we're going to pick them apart, kick every word and examine every little thought and nuance for hundreds of years. He has no clue. <coughs> he simply wants to help a church his brothers and sisters, do right by God. But his words, written as they were for sensible people, speak to us through the ages because the problems we face today are the same problems. They are the problems of old. It's easy to look around at this world and say, my God, we're surrounded by temptation in a way that we weren't when I was a kid. Okay? Think of how much they are using sexuality to sell things. It's everywhere. This is not new. These are not new temptations for us as Christians. People have been doing that for thousands of years in different ways. 
We have to realize that we are fighting the same struggle. And we have 2,000 years of a fantastic church and the acts of the Holy Spirit and of support from God, from Christ, to sustain us through. Well, at the end of verse 15, I've actually done what Paul asked. I have judged what he has said here. And I have found it inspired. I have found it applicable, and I have found it important. And I hope, as you judge what you hear up here on Sunday mornings, whether it's today from me or Mike or Zach or anyone else you hear up here, I hope that when you judge what we say, you will find one small piece of it to also be inspired, applicable, and important. Please pray with me. Dear God, we are all sinners. We are all flawed. But we are your people. And we are trying as hard as we can to be the people you want us to be. We have our good moments. We have our bad. We have our struggles, our failures, and our successes. But at the end of the day, we love you. And we want for you what you want from us. Thank you for your presence in our lives. Please guide us forward. Please see us through. Let us not enter into any trial, temptation. Let us not face any idol, whether obvious or subtle, without feeling your hand on our shoulder, your thoughts in our heart, your will in our decisions. Amen.